Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. My Old Kentucky Home is Kentucky's state song. Long a tradition to be performed and sung at the Kentucky Derby and many other events, some have surmised the song was first played at the Derby in 1921. Others have labeled the song and lyrics as racist. Today we have an opportunity to examine anew the Stephen Foster classic in a new book titled My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song by historian Emily Bingham, who asks this on her website. How did a minstrel song about the slave trade become a beloved melody, a celebratory anthem, and an integral part of American folklore and culture? Emily is currently a visiting honors faculty fellow at Bellarmine University in Louisville. Her essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in Vogue, Ohio Valley History, the Journal of Southern History, Newsweek, the Wall Street Journal, and the New England Review. Her books are Irrepressible, The Jazz Age Life of Henrietta Bingham, published in 2015, Mordecai, An Early American Family, published in 2003, and she was an editor with Thomas Underwood of the Southern Essays, Agrarian and the New Deal, Essays After I'll Take My Stand, that was in 2001. And Emily, before we get to the uh, song and to My Old Kentucky Home, and a little bit about Stephen Foster. Tell me about your relationship, if you will, with the, the physical place uh, that we know of in Bargetown, uh, the song. And you've been living with this subject matter for quite some time. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here with you, Bill. And um, yes, I was thinking back to the first time I gave any kind of a talk about this, which was now almost 10 years ago. And I called that first talk, What's That Singing in My Ear? Because I think everybody has that experience of the earworm, the song you just can't get out of your head. Well, you all can imagine that after years of research and writing, this is one I really can't get out of my head. Um, but this this is a song I've lived with my life, whole life. I grew up in Louisville. Uh, Derby City. I learned the song in school as well as a, I think maybe even on my recorder, maybe Camp Town Races, not my old Kentucky home. I'm not sure, but I know it was a Stephen Foster song. And, um, you know, it's just always was there. And then it would just sort of bubble up into this stratospheric position every Derby when the whole town kind of goes mad and we wait for that moment of moments when the horses step on the track and the University of Louisville's marching band, you know, bursts into that somber, but also incredibly plaintive and incredibly emotional song. As for the site in Bardstown, I think I was taken there once as a child. It had this sense of familiarity when I went back as a as a scholar to research more about the history of the place and the song here. 
but I think that familiarity was probably also uh, because I've just seen so many images of it over the years. And the, the, the house, it's called Federal Hill, and it will be 100 years next year since it came into uh, the public sphere and became a tourist attraction. So we've had a century of the old Kentucky home. But I, you know, it's on the state quarter. It's on postcards everywhere. Um, you know, it's on tchotchkes around, you know, that you might buy in the airport uh, or any gift shop and glassware that people have in their, you know, kitchen cabinets. So I think the iconography of that particular structure as the home um, has penetrated very deeply in, you know, kind of anybody who's around this area for sure. Well, for the history, um if you will, set the scene for us. What, tell us um, uh, about the time period in which uh, uh, you are aware of uh, before the Civil War, uh, when Stephen Foster began to write. Uh, sort of, uh, what was the, where was the country at that time, and, and how does that history and that scholarship lend itself to understanding Foster's words, his lyrics, uh, and the song itself? Right. So my first task, really, as as a someone looking at the history, the biography, the life of this song, is to contextualize its its birth, its you know its writing. Where did it come from? And a couple things are are really helpful, I think, and important to keep in mind. Um, Stephen Foster was born in Pittsburgh in 1826. That was an industrializing city. It was a fast-growing city on the Ohio River. Just, you know, Kentucky is just downriver toward the Mississippi. And the greatest trade, the economic lifeline of the nation at the time wasn't railroads. It certainly wasn't airplanes or highways. It was rivers. And these were the great rivers that carried people, including enslaved people, and even more, goods back and forth uh, from different regions. And so he experienced that in Pittsburgh growing up. He was from a middle class family that had a lot of economic ups and downs. And he went to work eventually. Um, he was not particularly interested in joining the industrializing American workforce, but he eventually took a position with his brother who had a shipping and mercantile business in Cincinnati. So very near, just across the Ohio from our state of Kentucky. And there he was keeping tabs, like literally, a you know, you know bookkeeping um, on that business of trade up and down the river. So that is where he began to publish his first songs. And one of those was Oh Susanna. Um, he was paid something for it. Actually, actually, I take that back. I believe he was paid something for another minstrel song called Uncle Ned. But what he uh, found out is that these songs in the genre, which was the absolute most dominant and thrilling and exciting entertainment of the day, which was blackface minstrelsy, these were people who, white people who put shoe polish or cork on their faces and sang, danced, performed for white audiences, pretending that they were black people. And there were a lot of 
entertainment innovations that went along with that, but it was also a complete artifice from the beginning and one that I think we still live with the repercussions of the stereotypes that, that began with that. But anyway, he, he was taken up with that fad just like anyone would be by any musical fad of the time when they were a child. And he wrote, for, uh, wrote songs in that, in that mode. And my old, uh, excuse me, um, Oh Susanna went all the way to the gold rush. This is the 1840s. Uh, gold rushers in California were singing it. It went across the oceans. Stephen Foster's songs were one of America's great exports culturally, even though they were sort of a common man thing. They were not high art, but it was considered uh, really, even though it was built on such an inauthentic basis, it was seen as the most authentic thing America had ever created, which is a deep irony that I think we, you know, kind of can sit with and contemplate. So that's what he was doing. And he took the leap to be a songwriter at a time when there was no professional songwriting class. And for that, I think, you know, he was extremely brave and had the passion to risk his own financial well-being for something that he just loved to do and cared about deeply. What does your research uh, tell you uh, influenced uh, him to write this particular song? Um, were there elements uh, in society, uh, uh, his family were, were Democrats, is that correct? Um, or at least he was influenced somewhat by uh, some familial uh, political uh, goings on. Just tell me a little bit about that part. Well, <clears throat> at the time this song was published in 1853, the nation was um, at odds with itself over not the existence of slavery, but the expansion of slavery into new territories. And that is where the Fugitive Slave Act uh, was part of a compromise that was struck with help from our own Henry Clay in, in, in Congress to try to keep the states together, keep the union together and agree that well, if we only expand it here, we won't do it there, but that was trying to keep everybody happy. Um, the forces who were against the expansion of slavery were not necessarily anti-slavery, they just didn't want uh, slave economy to take away the opportunities for free white people that they saw that might happen. So anyway, that's a lot of complication to say, uh, this was a time where, where the expansion of slavery was an extremely contested political issue. And into that debate walks Harriet Beecher Stowe, who uh, wrote, many of you all will know, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that was an anti-slavery novel that swept the nation. It was scandalous. It was bestseller. And Stephen Foster wrote a song that kind of mimicked the overall plot of, of that song. And some people think that he was writing an anti-slavery song, but it's really not something I think we can argue very well, because if you look at the lyrics of My Old Kentucky Home, the enslaved person who is depicted in that story wishes himself back into bondage from the Deep South to Kentucky. 
And I think we all can agree today that no one who is really against slavery envisioned just bringing people from the Deep South to be enslaved in Kentucky. <laughs> so there's, it, 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 it showed uh, the deep harm of slavery in a sense of this internal slave trade that was going on. Uh, but I don't think it proposed an anti-slavery response to that, um, to that, that really you know, deep pain at the center of our history. So at the time it was uh, written and being performed, was there a, were there different sides uh, of uh, some uh, uh, realizing that it was a condemnation of, of, the ins- uh, of, of slavery? Uh, while others, uh, and you point out in your book uh, several um, names that we know of, some that we don't, I mean, but, but Frederick Douglass, uh, the great uh, abolitionist uh, himself, uh, thought at one time, in fact, I think I have a quote, um, uh, he wrote that the song awakens sympathies for the slave in which anti-slavery principles take root, grow, and flourish. So even among someone uh, as well-known at the time as, as uh, Frederick Douglass, was in one sense not defending the song, or was he? That's a great question. Um, there's a great deal of wonderful work on Frederick Douglass, who lived an extraordinary and long life. He you know, escaped slavery and lived to see the great... Um, promise of freedom betrayed in this country. He, it was an extremely difficult arc for him. But he, at one point in the 1850s, says, you know, it's possible that songs like this, like Stephen Foster's My Old Kentucky Home and a few others that uh, at least removed the worst uh, kind of vitriolic racist language from blackface minstrel songs. I mean, it, I like to say that Stephen Foster in some ways gentrified blackface minstrelsy. He made it safer mm. for consumption by uh, respectable people. But, um, and I, in that sense, I think he empowered it to continue more than he corrected its flaws. But the, um, but Frederick Douglass, I think, was grasping for any hope he could. Imagine being 1855 and seeing millions of your you know, brethren enslaved and no end in sight. He was looking for hope, straws, anything that could possibly awaken people. And what I think we can say is that sentimental, uh, sentiment and nostalgia are powerful emotions, whether they awaken people to uh, real action is, uh, is, is something that James Baldwin critiqued, uh, even um, you know, so many uh, efforts of, of white progressives for getting tears in their eyes, but not taking uh, any action to change the cause uh, of the great pain in our society. Was there a period of time um, after the Civil War when it was uh, more or less accepted as um, as entertainment, as just the performance. You spend uh, uh, in the early parts of the book uh, a number of uh, parts of uh, the early chapters talking about the minstrel and how popular it was. And for those who don't really know 
Um, I, I mean, I've learned a, a great deal about other performers that uh, were were quite well known uh, as as stars in their in their own time. Of course, uh, some of us only know uh, Al Jolson or some of those uh, uh, larger uh, personalities. Uh, what what was the minstrel um, and and um, what else was performed and how did Stephen Foster um, promulgate the, the the use of his song as part of a minstrel show? Right. So I think the key f- to understand about all blackface minstrel shows of this era of the 19th century and and you know through the 19th century because this form of entertainment persisted is that there was always a depiction of plantation life. And that depiction involved happy singing, hapless, sometimes lazy, um, and goofy um, people enjoying their time on the plantation. And the other thing to be really conscious of around uh, blackface minstrel shows and that performance history is that they originated in the North. This is why I think this is an American story. We people in Kentucky have much to think about on this topic, but we didn't come up with this. And I think we need to absolutely understand that this is a national, uh, how blackness was created and you know, promulgated was something that, 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 that happens elsewhere. So Boston, Buffalo, you know, Baltimore, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, absolutely, were the centers of this, of this kind of performance. The other things that happened in minstrel shows is it, it would be sort of skits and plays, um, and then dancing and singing and playing of instruments like the banjo, which was, again, an exotic and did have an African origin. But most of the minstrel show was not particularly um, uh, you know, really drawn from anything authentically uh, African. And and the and it was entertainment. It was pure. It could make you laugh. It could make you cry. And people just couldn't get enough of it. It's hard for us to imagine. I, I, I know. And for me, sitting in uh, archives, reading about and looking at the playbills for and, you know, advertisements for the these troops, um, it, you know, it it's hard to... Um, it, it, you know, yeah, I've seen a lot more than most Americans ever have on that front, but those kind of uh, that those performances filtered all the way through into the 20th century into music, uh, published music, radio, vaudeville, and even into the movies. And the first talkie, you know, with Al Jolson being the jazz singer, in which he blacks up and as a way of escaping his own identity as a Jewish man uh, to, you know, sing about Mammy. And that's, that's, that is a root taproot of our cultural inheritance. Yeah. Um, in, in all of this, again, what does your scholarship tell you about uh, Stephen Foster and, and his position on all of this? Was he... Um, uh, he, he wasn't really around long enough to, to, to get into uh, 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 furious uh, national debates because he died so young, uh, did, did he not? I mean, uh, but, but what, 
what do we know of his uh, statu- uh, his position at the time in either defending the song as anti-slavery or or not? Or did he did he have that dialogue with with others? If he had that dialogue, Bill, we don't know it <laughs> because um, one uh, he he died. In 1863, while the Civil War was raging, he was living in New York at the time. He was an alcoholic. His life had completely fallen apart. But that, I think, comes from, you know, that's not a romantic thing of just the the artist struggling. I mean, he truly was struggling with depression and the fact that he couldn't really make a living at something that he was actually pretty darn good at. But the... His opinion and his politics are something that there's been a lot of speculation about. We don't have any hard evidence of what he thought. What we do have hard evidence of is that he kept track of how much he was, you know, how much he earned from each song. And this was his second most top earning song in his lifetime. And he wanted to make money. He needed to make money. And this was the kind of song that he could write that made money. And if we just get to the brass tacks of the the economy, this economy, whether it was our cultural economy or our actual economy of industrialization, was founded on exploiting black people. And that, and you know, white people as well were exploited, no doubt about that. Uh, but he he didn't cry out. Uh, he, he was not a po- political figure. The people around him were pro-slavery Democrats. Did he argue with them about slavery? I don't know. He might have. And I think when he saw that Harriet Beecher Stowe had written a whole book about a black man who sold away from Kentucky and that it sold millions of copies, he probably thought, well, that might sell some some songs too. And that that, I mean, that's my supposition. I know what his economic needs were, and he'd already written songs about black men, and here was another one that just had a similar arc where someone dies in a sugarcane field dreaming about his family and time as a bondsman in Kentucky. I'm talking with Emily Bingham, uh, the author of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song, and we're going to continue that conversation just a moment and, and talk about um, uh, after Foster um, passed away, uh, what happened in the future uh, uh, of the song and where we find it today, uh, right after this word from our wonderful friends and our underwriter, Spalding University. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Emily, if you will, let's um, the the book is so rich with uh, with your research and uh, the the work that you've put in on this. And there's 
I, I think you, you have described it before as being dense uh, in, in a, uh, a good way, uh, a very positive way. But let's fast forward, if we can, just a bit to the, um, to the point beyond uh, when it was being performed in Foster's time after his passing um, and before the lyrics were changed and we sort of get into the modern day, my old Kentucky home, and how it was celebrated during those years. That, that's, a, that's a big span of time. Uh, probably 50, 75 years or so. But tell us, tell us where, what happened during that time period with the song. Right. And just as a point of reference, it is critical for your listeners to know that in every verse of My Old Kentucky Home, there is a reference to what I call the D word, which was uh, a, is a slur, uh, a demeaning word to describe black people. And it, so that that needs to be uh, understood from the beginning. Certainly. Not everyone may know that. And if you want to listen to the song in, its, uh, in a form where it is sung through in its original lyrics, you can do that. Possibly there's a, con- a link you can add to, your, um, to the podcast site on, for this. On your website. And it's on my website as Certainly. well. Uh-huh. So, so what happens after Stephen Foster falls and cuts himself and dies alone in a hospital in, in New York? Well, <clears throat> this song continues to be performed all around the country with traveling minstrel shows that evolve, actually. The blackface minstrelsy doesn't die, but what becomes even more popular after the Civil War are um, white-run uh, shows, troops that travel from town to town and city to city, um, and they sing and they do plays like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin that sometimes uh, are pro-slavery versions of it or just melodramatic, you know, sort of uh, fair. And My Old Kentucky Home just keeps flying around on those wings. Um, so so that, and, th- and the people performing in them are actually black Americans getting their first chance to even enter show business, but they are instructed that this is the music they need to sing. Not only My Old Kentucky Home, but other kinds of songs that tend to be extremely stereotyped um, versions of, of, of blackness. Um, so, so that goes on. Again, it's, it's, I think for your Kentucky listeners, that wasn't a particularly popular thing in Kentucky. I mean, they came through and, you know, people saw it, but what what was more more interesting really is that come to see around the 1890s this song continues to be so popular that people in Kentucky notice that it might actually be to their benefit to uh, showcase it and you know people like the idea of the old Kentucky home because it it evokes a universal concept of homesickness or reverence for the old days or tradition or something. By this time, generations of Americans have heard the song. And so come around 1904, I like this, this, uh, this episode, there's a World's Fair in St. Louis, and the, um, the people who are organizing Kentucky's participation in that decide to call the Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky building, because every state gets a building, the old Kentucky home. And they promote 
the the place and draw in fans and visitors to the fair by having a continuous playing of My Old Kentucky Home. I think there was something like 18 versions of the song that just played 20, you know, whatever, all opening hours. And so the doors of this big mansion would be opened and people could walk through and hear and even get copies of the sheet music and even go into a room in the corner where there was a display of furniture and a few photographs of what was purported to be the Kentucky home where Stephen Foster wrote his storied and beloved melody. As if he had been there. Yes. And so this is St. Louis. You have people from the north, people from the south, people from all over the place coming to this World's Fair. And they also performed the song in military maneuvers that, uh, and I think it was Robert E. Lee's um, son came around and said, you know, oh, this is a you know, great job, everybody. That's a song we can all agree on. I argue that this was the kind of thing that brought white America, helped bring white Americans back together in the 1890s and turn of the century back together to do business, back together to get over the Civil War and, and all the you know conflict over black people's rights and so forth. This is the time of Plessy versus Ferguson. This is the time when it was settled business that black people couldn't vote in many parts of this country. So I see there's a confluence of agreement about um, celebrating a song that is about slavery, as something to be, you know, nostalgic over together as a nation. Um, and that's when Kentucky takes the tip from that success in St. Louis and starts finding, looking for ways to brand itself as this exotic and romantic place where you too can experience something of old Kentucky and the antebellum life. Well, we all know that Kentucky was never the center of plantation culture in this nation. However, we were a slave state. We sent hundreds, thousands and thousands of people to those states um, as human property. Um, but it's ironic that the first plantation house to open to the public for tourists to, to visit and one that you know helped tip off an entire movement of tourism through the through the South, South Carolina, New Orleans, um, Georgia, was not something not Tara. It was my old Kentucky home in Bardstown. That was the blueprint that was followed and has been followed ever since as a way to bring people to the South. Uh, I read this somewhere, and I'm not sure that um, it, it might have been on a website uh, that it was adopted as an anthem for Kentucky tourism uh, to be crass and commercial about it. I mean, that's... Well, that... the people who made this house open to the public were businessmen, politicians. This wasn't something that just welled up naturally. It, 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 it was a, a, a savvy um, public relations move and understandable. I, you know, they, they were hoping to help the economic status of, of a poor state. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it has left us with a 100-year legacy of adopting as our own 
something that other people associated with with us and that we have you know tried to benefit from and build upon but it may be that we're moving out of that phase bill you know it's been a century and we don't have to keep every tradition um, we are always thinking about and and i wonder if today's brand of kentucky is really my old kentucky home is it maybe maybe it's bourbon well let's uh explore that just a bit and ask you how you think Kentuckians uh, should should look at the song, uh, should look at the, uh, the house, um, should um, accept or deny that it was a part of our history a uh, hundred years ago uh, or more, uh, and now uh, times have changed. Uh, how 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 do you expect Kentuckians to uh, understand and and discuss uh, debate uh, your book and what what your conclusion, which we will get to in a moment, uh, might be about uh, about the song and about Stephen Foster? Well, it's never wrong to love a song, but I also think. We can commit wrongs when we don't understand what we claim to love. And so my wish and hope for my own state is that readers and, and people who hear about this will take a moment, look at that song, listen to it being sung in its original form, and sit with it for a moment and decide whether not decide, but allow themselves time to contemplate whether this is something we really need to hold as tightly as we have. Someone said that we pass tradition and some of those, I mean, this is a country that's been through so much around race recently, we all know, but we also know that's built on so many generations of, of, of efforts to make things better, but also incompleteness and one song isn't going to change that you know whatever we do with one song isn't going to change that history but I think we can we have learned that sweeping things under the rug and thinking that just goodwill will bring about the equitable place that we all want to live in in Kentucky in this nation is not enough. And so I wonder sometimes whether this can be a microcosm of a larger sitting with and being open to letting go of some things. Um, as uh, someone who has, you know, I, I just feel for too long that white people who created and benefited and marketed and uh, made money off this song in so many ways. It's time to let that other people decide what to do with it. People who have not generally benefited or made money from it. And the real question to me is what settings is it, does it really make sense to sing a song about slavery? Even if you say it's an abolitionist song, go ahead. You, Tell me that this song is out there and that every time you sing it, you think of saving, you know, our nation from its, you know, deepest sin. 
would the would a sporting event be the place to sing that? Is when we're all getting excited about watching people compete and hoping our team wins or our horse wins or so, for instance, would you say if you were in Germany, would you sing a song about the Holocaust before a soccer game? Would you, if you were in South Africa, would you sing a song about apartheid before a cricket match? How did we get here? And I think the book can help unravel the mystery and the deep entanglement that we have. And it's rich and it's powerful. And it's not about blaming anybody. This is about being honest with ourselves. And for me, that was a long evolution. I didn't just one day say, I'm, I don't believe I can sing that song anymore. Um, it took me years of sitting with it and trying to reckon. And you have decided not to sing it. I can't sing it anymore. I, I sang it to my children as little kids because I wanted them to know what their state song was and it's a pretty song and don't we all want to I mean I was passing on something I thought that you know we could maybe save together and make into something that was positive but I no longer I can't stand up for this song anymore I know the way it has harmed people I care about who have skin darker than mine who've looked at me and said Emily why? Why do you love? Why do you and people like you love this song so much when it has hurt all these years to be a Kentuckian and know that there are these roots to something that everyone gets teary-eyed about? Emily, a final question. You've already used the word that I was going to use in this uh, question, and that is reckoning. Um, if you can uh, forecast uh, after you do all the interviews, you do all the appearances, uh, you have an opportunity to to talk to a lot of people, uh, probably to answer a number of questions from audience members and from other moderators and uh, podcasters um, about uh, your thoughts. Using a reckoning from the title of your book, how do you think your reckoning will have changed, if any, uh, will have deepened, will have uh, carry more conviction than ever before, um, or, or something else that I'm not thinking might possibly, after all of this is over, might change you? Might change me, Emily? Well, I hope it doesn't change me too much in the sense that I'm, I'm a Kentuckian. I love my state and I love my nation. I, I, I like to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, who, who said in, in the 50s to a group of college students, she said, study history realistically. You'll love your country just as much. I mean, that is, I'm a historian, I can't help it. That's what I try to do, and I try to teach, um, and I try to op, you know, offer that chance to others. You know, I, I hope it will leave me even more hopeful. The, you know, I, I think that's possible, that we are at a moment where people are taking a little more time to think. 
And as a nation, we are trying really hard in some ways to listen to people whose voices have not previously been listened to. And again, as a microcosmic comment, for generations, black Americans protested this song, protested the way they were asked to perform it, protested, you know, one, one editor said, haven't, haven't we heard a little too much about, you know, the, the great old days at my old Kentucky home? And that was 120 years ago that was written. So there are black voices that have been saying this for years, and a very minor uh, repair was supposedly made. I would say it's a, not, not even a Band-Aid, but that, you know, helped a little, but didn't really get at the root of who we are to have decided that this is the appropriate song to represent us all, us all. That's really, and that's where reckoning to me becomes about love and about hope and about commitment to being in community. Emily Bingham, and the book is uh, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. We thank you so much for joining us on Think Humanities Podcast. Thank you, Bill. It was great. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.